This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. All right, this will be a fun one. I'll talk to Rustin Dodd of The Athletic. New piece out with Jason Jinx, the decade of disaster for Kansas football, looking at the fallout of the Mark Mangino era, the power struggle between he and Lou Perkins, and the next 10 years of ineptitude that followed it. Uh, it's a really good piece, but also Rustin, with the time that he spent around the Kansas program at the Kansas City Star, has a good perspective. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. But we are not fully moving on from basketball yet. We are still in the Kansas Basketball National Championship honeymoon. And what often happens when a team wins a title is that there is a mass exodus. Usually that's a negative term. In this case, it's just that guys are capitalizing off of what is, for most of them, going to be the pinnacle of their career and the momentum that they have that they can use to sort of push them into the professional level. David McCormick could have come back for a fifth year. David McCormick's never going to be an NBA player. So you might as well use that momentum that you have from playing so well in the national championship game and try to go and make some money. Maybe you get a 10-day contract. Maybe you float around in the G League. But ultimately, if you end up having a 10-plus year career playing overseas, that's a very successful way to uh, make a living. As for the other two guys, the big names that I want to talk about today, Christian Brown and Jalen Wilson. Both of those guys have multiple years of eligibility remaining, and both of those guys have declared for the NBA draft while also retaining that eligibility. They're in different positions, though, when it comes to the decisions that they're going to make, not just because of how you view them as draft prospects. Let's start first with Christian Brown, because he is a better pro prospect than Jalen is. Depending on where you look, he could be a mid-20s guy, late first-round pick, up into the early first, uh, the 40s, mid-second round pick. And that's a big distinction. There's a big difference between being the 40th overall pick and being the 25th overall pick, not just because of the money and the guaranteed salaries, but because of the investment that teams are going to put into you to make sure that you work. It's it, There's there's a an urgency of making sure you nail those first-round picks that just doesn't exist in the second round. With Christian, it's interesting with the NIL deal, with winning the national championship, looking at some of the money that other places are getting, I would be really curious to see if he were to come back for his senior season, what kind of money he could make in the NIL. I mean, I would assume I would assume that he could make upwards of six figures. You see the Nigel Peck deal uh, where he ends up making, you know, a half a million dollars. Like, 
that's not going to be there for everybody. And not every single university is going to be able to offer that. But I would assume, I would assume Christian Brown could dip his hand into a lot of pots and, and make a lot of money at Kansas, especially coming off that title. I think that ultimately from a basketball standpoint, Christian needs to prove that he can be a secondary ball handler. He's not going to be at a three in the NBA like he was at Kansas. Like, he was never initiating a ton of offense. The great thing about Kansas was that they were running so often and they were getting out in transition that he just got to sort of showcase his athleticism and his ability to move the ball in transition, to finish in transition, and that's great. At the next level, though, he's going to have to be able to sort of initiate offense on his own in those half-court sets. I know that... It's a free-flowing, open game in the league, but for him, I, I think being able to go and get your own, being able to put the ball in the deck, being able to drive, being able to initiate offense, all of those things are things that he's going to have to do to prove that he can stick in the NBA. You can make the argument that it's going to be a grind no matter what, so you might as well go get started right now, which I would totally understand, but it's sort of where Ochai was a season ago, which is it wouldn't have been a mistake for Ochai to go pro. He very well could have made the same leap. Because think about where Ochai grew the most over the last 12 months. We saw the finished product by the season he had at Kansas. But the growth happened in the offseason. The growth happened after he went to the Combine. Was told that he needed to be more aggressive. He needed to learn to be an alpha. He needed to learn to be a leader. Work on your jump shot. Get your own bucket. He spent the summer training and and, and perfecting his game and working on his craft. That's where the work was. So he could have very well done the exact same work, kept his name in the draft, and then instead of having the season that he had at Kansas, he could have had a really productive, impressive rookie season in the NBA. And we wouldn't have said after the fact that that was a mistake because look at what you could have done in the league. It's a grind no matter what, whether you're in college or in the NBA. He happened to come back to college, and now he has the title to show for it. And I'm sure he wouldn't trade that for anything. My point is there's not a right or wrong answer to any of this. You could argue for some guys it's easier to improve in college and work on your game throughout the course of the season going up against inferior competition. There's also the flip side of when you're in the league, that's your only job. You don't have to worry about going to class. You don't have the other distractions that come with playing college basketball. So there's a give and take there. But ultimately, I do think he's in a very similar position to where Ochai found himself. The biggest difference is that when Ochai was making his decision last year, you didn't have the reality of NIL. You knew it was maybe coming, but these schools weren't prepared. I don't think a lot of these players were prepared to the point where now Christian, in weighing this decision that he's going to make over the next month or so, has to look at NIL as a very legitimate appeal to college because you know there are going to be offers out there, and he's going to know on the table – what is out there for him if he does decide to come back for an extra year at Kansas. Jalen Wilson's in a different position because Jalen's not the same prospect that Christian is. I don't see Jalen having uh, an NBA career. I think he can go make a lot of money and have a really successful career playing overseas. I just don't know what his position is. You play the stretch four at Kansas where you can just be a, a great rebounder and sort of an energy guy. At the next level, though, you're going to have to play the three. I don't know if he's athletic enough to play the three. Offensively, I don't think he's a good enough driver. I don't think he's a good enough shooter. He's a great college basketball player. He's a great college basketball player. I just don't see how his game 
ever really translates. Like Christian, I could see him improving on his draft stock and doing what Ochai did, going from being maybe a late first round, a fringe first round prospect to all of a sudden winding up in the top 15 potential lottery pick. Jalen, much like Dave, I'm not sure what you stand to gain by coming back for another season. You can improve on your game. Like, what if Jalen becomes a 38, 39% three-point shooter? That'd be fantastic. I'm still not sure if he becomes a legit pro prospect. I know it's really tantalizing in our heads to think about best-case scenario. What if he improves upon all of these things and all of a sudden winds up being a fringe first-round pick? Maybe, but more often than not, you go back over history, more often than not, those guys don't just drastically improve year after year after year. It sounds nice and clean and neat and buttoned up to just say guys get incrementally better with each passing season, but rarely does it work that often and and rarely does it sort of end up being such a nice, tidy, clean product like we saw with Ochai who just got steadily better over his four years at Kansas. I'm not saying all of this to say that Jalen needs to keep his name in the draft, but much like I said with Christian, If you know that it's going to be a grind no matter what, if you know that you're going to have to work your tail off and you're going to need a lot of things to go your way in order to end up making it, for some guys, you would rather just do it right now, also collect the paycheck. Again, NIL changes things. And we're going to need not just another season, but three, four, five seasons under our belts to really understand what the market is out there, to have a firm grasp on the difference between being the 32nd overall pick and the salary that you'll make in the NBA versus staying in college at a place like Kansas with a ring already on your finger and understanding the type of money that could be waiting for you in an IL deals and that sort of thing. So for Jalen, I think there's maybe less to gain by coming back, but also the options aren't quite as attractive as they are for a guy like Christian. He's maybe somewhere in between the Dave, what else could I possibly do to improve my draft stock versus Christian I have a ton to gain by coming back for another season financially because there is a big difference between being a fringe first-round pick like Ochai. Think about how much money Ochai made himself by coming back to Kansas, now knowing you're going to be a top 15 pick, a top 13 pick, a lottery pick. The financial investment that a team has in a lottery pick is light years beyond what it is for a fringe first-round guy for the 34th overall pick. Ochai made himself a lot of money. The NIL deal muddies the waters a little bit. But ultimately, I do think both of these guys come back, not because it's an educated guess or because I have any insight into the decisions that they're going to make or the feedback that they're going to get from the NBA, but more so just a projection based off who they are, where their game's at, and what they could become. All right, Rustin Dodd spent a long time covering Kansas uh, for the Kansas City Star and just posted a piece with Jason Jenks on The Athletic talking about what is, quote, the decade of disaster for Kansas football. Rustin, for those before we get into the specifics of this story, I know most people are probably familiar with you and your work, but can you give us a kind of a a brief background on when you were covering Kansas and your time around the program? Yeah, well, I was, uh, I guess if we want to go all the way back, I was in school at, at Kansas from 2005 to 2009, uh, so I was around a little bit, the football program when I was working at the university daily Kansan at, at the time, but really, uh, when I c- covered Kansas for the Kansas city star was mainly 2013, 
2015 or 2012 to like 2015, essentially parts of, I, I guess I did all four seasons because I was, um, I'd left the KU beat in uh, early 2016, but yeah, so 2012 to 2015 were the, were the years that I was kind of covering Kansas up close. So the decade of disaster as it's dubbed in your piece appropriately it wouldn't be nearly as notable if it weren't preceded by a fairly remarkable run of success for Kansas football. They had had, I think it was two bowl wins in their previous 40 seasons before Mark Mangino gets hired. He gets hired in 2002. He's in a bowl game the next year, and then he goes 12-1 and wins the Orange Bowl four years after that. What do you think allowed him to have success in a place where success was so hard to find? Well, I think if you just like look at Mark Mangino, there was a couple of things, right? I mean, he had been an assistant coach at Kansas under, or Kansas state, I should say under Bill Snyder. And obviously at Oklahoma under Bob Stoops, like he had a great pedigree. I think, you know, frankly, to be quite candid, and I think this was reported at the time, I I think if he wasn't so sort of rough around the edges, personality wise, he probably would have been a guy who would have gotten opportunities at even a, a better program, you know, than a Kansas, um, you know, still a good, good place to get a job, obviously in the big 12, but I think he was a really good coach and he was a taskmaster and a disciplinarian. And, um, and I think that's what you kind of needed at Kansas at the time. You know, it's, it's funny to take a step back really quickly. Uh, you know, we did this story, on kind of the last 10 years of Kansas football in part because the athletics is doing kind of a series of stories on college football programs right now. And just sort of looking at various programs, what happened, you know, to that program, what happened to that program, why do programs kind of rise and fall? And so that's sort of, uh, you know, the background of this story, but, you know, if you really kind of look at it, you know, people have (laughs) written so many stories like this about Kansas football and, you know, so that's, it's not like this is an original piece mm-hmm. where nobody has looked into this program before. And I, I frankly wrote a story that was not all that different um, in 2014, I think for the Kansas city star. Now, granted, we're now eight years down the road and, you know, eight years ago, people were, or, you know, people were writing stories. What happened to Kansas football? Eight years later, people are still writing what happened to Kansas <laughs> football. But, um but no, so yeah, we just, but we wanted to take a kind of a wide scope look and try to kind of unearth some things that um, had not been written before and try to take kind of a fresh look at it and see if, you know, the time that had passed between some of these various regimes and coaching searches would, uh, you know, loosen some lips, I guess you would say from a reporting perspective and allow people to be, maybe speak a little bit more freely. Um, and so that was sort of, you know, but getting back to Mark Mangino, um, yeah, I mean, I think he was kind of what you need at, at a place like Kansas, right? You Somebody who's just going to be, you know, to use his phrase, to, to keep sawing wood, you know, to put their head down and, and just get after it. And it's very much more about substance than anything else. Um, and I think, you know, it also took Mark Mangino, you know, I think you saw progress a few years after he got to Kansas, but, you know, it wasn't all perfect when he was there, right? You know, they were kind of right around that kind of 500 part for a lot of the decade he was there. Um, you know, they they made some bowl games, but barely. And then it wasn't until they really found the quarterback in Todd Reesing and then obviously hit on some, 
some recruits and Akib Talib, Chris Harris, and you look at that all that defense they had during the Orange Bowl year, and they have that you know amazing season, and they're able to sustain it at least for another year, and then it, it sort of falls apart in 2009. But um, yeah, they they really seem to you know at least in by Kansas standards have it up and running. When I was reading this, and they we're recording this on uh, on Tuesday evening, but when I was reading it this morning, I was sort of struck by specifically. The, the large chunks of this piece that examined the relationship between Lou Perkins and, and Mark Mangino. Because to me, like that is at the crux of this, again, this decade of disaster for Kansas football. Because about, I think it was about two years after Mangino is hired, KU hires Lou Perkins as its athletic director. And oddly enough, they, they hire him to replace Al Bull, who... <laughs> had a very public dispute with the beloved Roy Williams. So then you bring in this new athletic director and instead he's got a dispute immediately with the football coach who's having unprecedented success. So what was the dynamic between Lou Perkins and Mark Mangino like there at the beginning? Well, I don't know that they ever got along, uh, you know, all that well. Um, I mean, obviously these sort of things depend on who you talk to. Um, but I think they were two kind of headstrong individuals who uh, just really never saw eye to eye, you know, and in the story, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, there were, you know, assistant coaches who would, you know, be tipped off about that Lou was going to speak to Mark in his office and there would be, you know, they'd be anticipating fireworks. So they might go, you know, step out for a second or they would, you know, you could <laughs> hear yelling like they'd, the relationship just never quite worked uh, between those two. Um, and so as far back as, you know, 2005, uh, you know, when, when Mark Mangino had kind of made some progress, they'd made the bowl game uh, in 2003, but now they were kind of stuck kind of in, I don't know, right around 500. You know, that's when I think Lou Perkins started to think, okay, you know, I'm never, and granted I'm, I'm, we did not talk to Lou Perkins. He's, I don't think he's talked publicly about um, any of this uh, since he left and any, at least not any sort of, uh, you know, you know, lengthy way. So be clear of that, but um, yeah, it was there according to, you know, sources and people we talked to that it was right around 2005 that Lou Perkins started thinking about, okay, maybe if there's not a little bit of progress, I'm going to get Mark rid of Mark Mangino and, and hire my own coach. Yeah, and he wasn't just saying this like privately. Like he was, it seemed like he was telling anybody who would listen, Rustin. Like, it, like parts of your pieces when you're talking about not just him, you know, going on a walk on the beach with a major donor, but like telling assistant coaches. Like, maybe I'm just naive, but that would seem on the surface to be uncommon practice for somebody in Perkins' position. Well, I think he was, um, you know, a, a blunt um, guy, right? I mean, and very, um, kind of demanding and he wanted it his certain way. Um, you know, I think it's, it's funny though, because if you, if you do think it's, you know, we, we are, we look back at it through the prism of the orange bowl and then the, the inside bowl the next year and the success they had, you know, in 2000, I get all these years confused, especially with the way the football works. Yeah, <laughs> but, I know uh, it's always confusing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in 2006, um, that was the year that Todd Reesing was uh, redshirting. And Kerry Meyer was the quarterback that year and they, they struggled, right? They didn't make a bowl game that year. Um, and so, and they had talent. And I think, so 
looking back after that year was the year where uh, Lou Perkins basically told assistant coaches on the team, like, hey, you have to win eight games or I'm going to make a change here. Uh, and so you could say that's not very common practice, but you could also say it's setting expectations, I suppose, uh, and saying, hey, you, you guys need to make some progress here. Now they then they went out and won 12 games and, and won the Orange Bowl. But, you know, it was it was very it was not a secret that, you know, Lou Perkins was thinking about moving on from Mangino because he was telling the staff, if you don't win, you know, X amount of games, if you don't show something this year, I'm going to move on. And so I, I think, um, you know, it was all clear at the time that uh, those two had 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 not gotten along and that. Lou was, you know, thinking about making a change. Do you think that 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 winning was the primary motivator for Lou Perkins, or was that just a convenient shield to try and force Mangino out and get his own guy? You know, I mean, it's to be honest, it's hard to say without being too speculative about it. I, you know, if you you talk to people around the program at that time, people will you know ascribe all sorts of motivations. You know, uh, you know. Lou Perkins wanted somebody in there that, you know, his own guy, he wanted to, you know, he was never going to hire a basketball coach. Bill self was there before he was, um, had already been hired. He'd won a national championship or won one in 2008. So he's not going anywhere. And so, you know, that Lou wanted to go in and, you know, and make a change, you know, kind of create his own legacy, I guess. But again, these are all, these are things that people will say, but, I don't know that you can know for sure. Um, and, you know, these were, you know, he, he obviously thought the program should be at a certain level. He didn't think it had been there and was, you know, looking for a way to maybe hire his own coach to to take it there. When you were talking to people around the program and writing this story, or just when you've done this in the past, when you were even covering the team, when Mangino starts getting investigated in 2009 and every single stone starts getting turned over, did you find that there was a general consensus about how people felt about him or was it sort of a mixed bag? Well, this is, you know, the Mangino investigation that happens halfway through the the 2009 season is an interesting one. Um, You know, you know, first off, if you, you know, talk to some former administrators, some former co- members of this coaching staff. Everybody was sort of blindsided by it. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people who were working in the athletic department were not involved in it. You know, they, you know, Lou Perkins didn't really just tell everybody, hey, this is what we're going to do. Um, you know, he had a, a few people that worked under him and they basically, you know, launched an investigation based on a couple of incidents that they had heard about. Uh, and then, you know, proceeded to spend, you know, the second half of that season, you know, interviewing players, interviewing coaches, you know, uh, after practice, basically, you know, asking, you know, every player in the program, you know, Hey, have you ever had any, you know, problems with Mark Mangino? I mean, I, I don't know if that's the, exactly the way they asked the question, but essentially saying like, have you, has there been any, you know, behavior from coach Mangino that has, you know, that you think has been inappropriate or, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but Mm -hmm. you get the gist. Um, And so that happens, you know, that year. And if you remember, and I'm, I was not covering the team at, at this point, but, you know, stories started coming out in the press, both, you know, of things that Mark Mangino had said to players, 
things that he had said in the past, things he had done to players at you know even previous stops, other places he had coached before. So there was just sort of this momentum uh, about you know Mark Mangino's behavior that then sort of built through that whole season. And obviously they started out five and zero. You know they finished five and seven and I, I don't think it was a coincidence that they basically lost the team that second half of the season, you know, coaching coaches on that staff will even say, Hey, we lost the team, you know, and, and I think part of the reason they lost the team was, you know, there was an internal investigation about their head coach. Um, you know, and, and saying all that though, I think if you also, you know, take a critical eye at some of the behavior that uh, Mark Mangino was, um, you know, exhibiting towards players, you could say that it was, you know, borderline abusive, or you could say it was inappropriate, or you could say it was insensitive. You could, you could say all sorts of things. And players have said that too, that, you know, that he, he crossed the line, you know, numerous times. Um, so it's, it's a complicated subject. If you try to figure out, you know, what were the motivations behind the investigation um, versus, you know, was the behavior that uh, Mark Mangina was, you know, exhibiting, was it appropriate? You know, those can be kind of, you know, you can find different answers or they're, they're kind of like both things can be true at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. That, um, that the investigation might've been sort of trumped up, um, and manufactured in certain ways. Uh, but there were, were, there were, you know, players on the team that were sincere in their feelings that, um, that Mark Mangino crossed the line with them and, and they've been on the record before. And, um, and so, yeah, I think that's important to point out as well, but Everybody, you know, that was on that staff, and I guess I shouldn't say everybody. I haven't talked to everybody, but you know, everybody that we talked to was pretty clear that that investigation was, uh, and to use their words, uh, a witch hunt and, and sort of manufactured to uh, to sort of dig up dirt on uh, on Mark Mangino. So this isn't really a question, but just to kind of follow up what you just said over the, I was working in Lawrence for six years before I was working in Kansas city. And I, over the years, not to the level that that you and Jason did for this piece, but in talking to former staff members or players, I don't think I've ever heard one player come out and just say, I love the guy to death. It was such an honor to play for him. Like nobody really talks about Mark Mangino that way, but the, the people that I have talked to that were on that Orange Bowl team talk about him in a way of of what he represents more than what he actually was as a coach. Because for a lot of these guys, under-recruited, got passed over by bigger programs. Mark Mangino and this staff took a chance on them. They ran a, a really uh, highly motivational sort of system that isn't for everybody. But I think when, when, things, when the cracks started to show in 2009... Guys took umbrage with it, maybe not because they loved this coach and they wanted to go to bat for him and they felt like his character was being torn down, but because they felt a sort of connection to what he had built and the opportunity that was sort of presented during his time at Kansas. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, I think people appreciated the culture of the program, right? You know, that it felt like a hard-nosed you know, the fighting man Geno's this okay. sort of scrappy program. And I think you will, you'll both, you know, hear former players that I, I talked to while I was covering the team and, you know, while doing this story, you know, you'll, you hear them say like, you know, they, they appreciated the, you know, the culture of the program. And also there was an element of, um, you know, it, Mark Mangino's style, 
sort of created kind of solidarity and, and, in the locker room, right? It, it kind of created an us against them mentality. In this case, the us was the players and them was the head coach. Um, but, you know, maybe that style is sort of, you can't do that in 2022 and maybe you couldn't do it to a, you know, to the hundred percent degree in, in 2008. Um, but I think it's a pretty, you know, common style in the history of coaching. And I think there were a lot of players that if they didn't love the style of coaching, they sort of understood what, you know, Mark Mangino was trying to do and why, you know, why he acted the ways he did, why he coached that way. And th- frankly, they, they liked playing for, you know, uh, a coach that really cared. And I, I think that is true too. If you're, if you're talking about a coach that really is invested and cares in, you know, you know, being as good as you can be and, and being a great team and a great program, Mark Mangino certainly did that. So if you had, you know, guys that really, really cared about winning and were invested, I think, um, you know, they, they certainly cared about that. And I think, you know, it's, it's, this is probably true, not just about Mark Mangino, but it's probably true about any coach. You know, if you go through, if you have a taskmaster, taskmaster coach, you know, a disciplinarian, you know, and you're successful or whatever, you may, you know, a Bob Knight, you know, to, to pick the most obvious classic example, you know, you may not love it when you're going through it and you may not love it two or three years down the road, but as years pass, you're going to get more and more nostalgic about, uh, about that experience. And I, I think even, I think now if, you know, if guys are honest about Mark Mangino, you know, there's lots of stuff they probably didn't love, but, they're, they probably are will grow fonder as the years go on. Um, that's not to excuse any of the behavior or anything like that, but I, I just think it's it's you know an interesting to think about the ways that the guys that played in the program at that time you know thought about the experience. So once he exits in two thousand nine, uh, it was public at the time, and it gets brought up about every single time that KU's making a new hiring, Jim Harbaugh. And he wasn't. That name didn't have the same cachet as it has today, but he was still a very well-respected coach at Stanford. Um, he ought be fam- very famously was not willing to leave Stanford for the bowl game that they had coming up to take the Kansas position. Lou Perkins instead offers the job to Turner Gill. If Harbaugh had been willing to leave Stanford early and not coach them in that bowl game, do you believe that he would have been Lou Perkins' first choice? You know, I do not know 100% uh, either way, but the, the evidence suggests that potentially no. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I, you know, what I can tell you is that, uh, you know, Clint Bowen, former KU um, assistant coach, former interim coach for half of his season, you know, he says that he was talking to Jim Harbaugh uh, during that time, um, and that Jim Harbaugh wanted the job and, you know, KU interviewed Jim Harbaugh in New York. He was very open and upfront about his interest in the job. Um, you know, we, we write this in the story that he, you know, obviously had connections to Michigan. That's where he went to school. He had connections in the NFL. He played in the NFL for a long time. Both of those were obviously going to be very appealing to him, but that he was interested in the Kansas job and he was never, to the best of our reporting, he was never offered the job. Um, so, you know, some people believe that's because 
because he wanted to coach in the bowl game. Uh, you know, Lou Perkins uh, wanted him right away. Some people believe, you know, it was, you know, that there were other concerns in the process and that Lou, uh, you know, found a guy that he was more comfortable with in Turner Gill. Again, some of these are questions that have not been answered, you know, 100% just because of all the participants haven't, uh, you know, talked about it. But, uh, you know, to the best of our knowledge and our reporting, they interviewed him. He was interested in the job and he was never offered the job. So this is going to be a long list. I'm going to give you the list of all the hires that KU made after Mangino's exit. So not just Turner Gill, but Charlie Wise, David Beatty, Les Miles. You've also got two athletic directors, Shan Zanger and Jeff Long. I'm not counting the guys that are currently there. If they could have a do-over on any of those hires, which do you think they'd choose? I guess, I mean, it's a tough question. I guess you just go back. I guess you go back to the very beginning and try to hire you know, what is it, what does Kansas football look like if they hire Jim Harbaugh uh, instead of Turner Gill? I mean, it looks dramatically different. Now there's all sorts of, you know, what if scenarios, mm-hmm. right? I mean, maybe Jim Harbaugh has a successful year or two and he bolts off to a bigger program. Um, maybe he struggles out of the gate, bolts to the NFL to, 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 to get out of the situation. You know, who, who can say, I mean, it's impossible to know. Um, but I, I, I do think that, you know, if you even just going back to, you know, it's interesting to look back at, uh, where Jim Harbaugh was in his career at the time, because in retrospect, you know, he's the success he had in the NFL. And then obviously now at Michigan, it seems crazy that Kansas would have ever been in the running for him. But, uh, you know, when Kansas was interviewing him before the 20 or after the 2009 season, he had was going to a bowl game with uh, Stanford, but he, they, he had not been to a BCS bowl game yet, right? Uh, the, the really breakout season came the next year uh, where they had a one-loss season. Um, and he was not, you know, paid that highly relative to, you know, top coaches across college football, and Kansas could pay more than Stanford. Uh, obviously, he had the family connections as well. Um, but to get back to the question, I think if – I think, you know, just hiring Turner Gill, you know, you was he the worst coach they've had in the last decade? I I have no idea. I, I honestly don't know, and I'm not even really sure how you would quantify that compared to, you know, the various coaches that they had. I do know that just the, 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 the quickness that the program fell over those next two years, coupled with him getting fired, and then all of a sudden it starts a chain reaction where you're basically – keep trying to dig out of a hole and keep digging it in digging, you know, even deeper and deeper by the constant, you know, turnover. I think if you could go back, it's that first hire, whether it's Jim Harbaugh or somebody else, if you can keep the program even kind of halfway there, I think the last decade looks a lot different. Yeah. It's tough because I mean, personally, I don't think he's the worst coach that Kansas has had over the last decade, but when he was there, like even by the time he was done, the program had fallen, but it wasn't what became uh, the, over the next decade. Like by the time Charlie Weiss was leaving, by the time David Beatty was leaving, it was, I mean, for lack of a better term, it was a laughing stock in college football. And it wasn't that. It wasn't that when Turner Gill was there. But you're right. The, the chain of events that would have set off had Jim Harbaugh been the guy who would have replaced him, you know, a couple years down the line when he inevitably left. Um, 
That to me is the big question because you're probably not giving Charlie Weiss a five-year, $12.5 million contract a couple years later. And then three years later, you're not having to hire a, a wide receiver coach from Texas A&M. No, no, definitely. And I mean, we get into this in the story, but there's all, you know, it's it's not just, I mean, it, to be as bad as Kansas has been over the last decade, it's it's not just the coaches. It's not just the athletic directors. Um, I mean, it's just kind of institutionally failure on a, on a lot of levels of, you know, investment or lack of their investment, uh, bad hires. I mean, you name it. Um, but they've, uh, they've not been able to, you know, find the right, right formula, uh, to dig out of the hole. All right. So I'll let you go on this Rustin over the uh, decade of disaster. If, if you're to take one snapshot that sticks in your brain, one, one image that kind of you think resonates with you when you think back to that time for Kansas, is there one that comes to mind? Okay, so, yeah, I have a couple, actually. One of them is one I was not present for, but I, I still find it, you know, just I, I find it very symbolic of, of the, the last decade uh, you know, when Charlie Weiss arrived, you know, part of his selling point was he's a quarterback guru, right? He, he had coached Tom Brady in New England. He had just recently helped Matt Castle, um, you know, help, um, you know, win a division title with the Chiefs as, you know, as an offensive coordinator. And if, you know, in hindsight, um, that's actually a pretty impressive feat, <laughs> you know, uh, like Charlie Weiss, you know, you can say a lot of things about him, but he he at one point in his career, you know, was a good coach. He, he knew how to coach offensive football and, um, and new quarterbacks. And, you know, Ian, so, um, anyway, so he, he gets to Kansas and he has that reputation, right. And, you know, he's a quarterback guy, uh, and he brings in, you know, Dane Christ, a, a guy who'd, you know, recruited to Notre Dame and, uh, was transferring. And then he had recruited, uh, Jake keeps who had been a top, quarterback recruit who had been up in the Seattle area had gone to BYU and hadn't worked out there. So two really highly recruited quarterbacks out of high school, he gets to transfer to Kansas and, you know, he has the press conference where he essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, you know, I went out to, you know, to, you know, fix the quarterback position. And he kind of looks at Jay keeps and Dane Christ and says, how'd I do? Uh, you know, very kind of, you know, content with himself. And, um, and in retrospect, it's, it's, you know, well, not very well, you know, (laughs) and to be fair to both of those guys, you know, they were pro style QBs who'd come in to, you know, play behind a patchwork offensive line and a roster that had been gutted by transfers. And those guys were thrown into no win situations as well. So it, it wasn't on them, but it that I think maybe speaks if anything, it speaks a little bit to just sort of the hubris of, of, of Charlie Weiss of that era. And, you know, I will say we didn't even get into this cause there's a, a million things to get into um, that, you know, people will say, you know, around the Kansas program who were there at the time that Charlie Weiss actually did a pretty good job his first year there. And that as least as, as, you know, guys that have seen a lot of different programs that he brought some discipline, he brought some professionalism, he, um, you know, brought, you know, a, a scheme and I hesitate to use that word because <laughs> Charlie Weiss, but, uh, but that he brought a lot of things to the program and that it wasn't until his second year in the program where he really started to sort of 
check out, but that's a, a whole nother part of the story. And you can read about it in the, in, in the piece, you know, the, the, I, the other one that I don't even think this made the story. Um, but I, I find this the most, this is actually one of the things and I was covering the team at the time, I believe. And one of the, the almost saddest things I remember about covering Kansas football was that they could not find a quarterback, right? They, uh, heaps and Chris didn't work. They had, uh, you know, run off some guys that had been recruited by Mangino. They had, you know, recruited some other young quarterbacks. And the one guy that really wasn't ever really given a shot uh, was Michael Cummings, who was, you know, this short, undersized recruit, um, you know, didn't have a huge arm, but like, you know, could move around a little bit and can throw it. And finally, he gets his shot um, in the year that uh, Charlie Weiss is fired. And then, um, the Clint Bowen, serves oh, yeah. As, yeah, Clint Bowen serves as the interim. He has a great year and, and he's probably their best quarterback performances, at least for at least, you know, seven, eight years, uh, where Michael Cummings, he goes into the next year, David Beatty's first year tears his ACL in the spring game. When he gets hit in a spring game, the quarterback gets hit in a spring game by a walk on. Um, and, and it's almost like, I feel bad because like Michael Cummings probably would have had a great year, or at least a relatively speaking, he would have had a really solid year and KU would have had probably their best quarterback they'd had in four or five years, at least relatively speaking again. And though that was the kind of stuff that seemed to happen. And like that would only happen at Kansas during that, that time period that you would have a quarterback, a senior quarterback, Terrace ACL in the spring game while getting hit. And it's um, anyway, those were, those are the two instances that I think I, I I think about the most with Kansas football the last decade. Yeah, and you kind of hinted at it there at the end. We didn't even really get into uh, the David Beatty, Les Miles eras, but um, I think the farther away we get from the Mangino and the Perkins stuff and, and the immediate aftermath of that, the more interesting it is to sort of peel back the curtain, which uh, you and Jason did a great job of. So please go read it, uh, Decade of Disaster. It's on The Athletic, well worth the price of admission. Rust and Dodd, thank you so much for the time, man. I really enjoyed this. Cool. Thanks, Nick. All right. Big thanks to Rustin for hopping on with me. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review. We'll have some more stuff coming as the draft approaches um, on Ochai, on Christian, on Jalen, if those guys end up keeping their names in the draft. Uh, no transfer portal stuff today. I learned my lesson last year. You can waste a lot of time talking about guys who never play a single game in a Kansas uniform. Not doing that this time around, but if uh, real, substantive, information comes about on the portal on the recruiting trail be sure to share it with you all right wave of the week this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 